Let's pray. Lord, it is a delight for us to be in your house with your people. We are your house. We are the family of God, the household of faith. And week by week, we come to this short letter that Paul wrote to Timothy to learn what it means to live in the household of faith as sons and daughters of God, whose Father is our Creator and our Savior, no longer our Judge, but our our gracious Father. And so we pray, Father, that as you lead us through this text of Scripture, that you would feed us and satisfy our souls and remind us of how good it is to belong to you and how dangerous it is to be distracted from you by the things of this world which cannot last. So, Father, be for us what you've promised to be for us now. Send your Spirit to convict us and to change us and to encourage us and to remind us who we are in Christ and what we have in him. And, Lord, all of these things we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. This morning, I want to talk to you about a subject that I hope will refresh your souls, as it has also convicted mine this week, as I've studied in this passage that lies before us this morning. We are in 1 Timothy chapter 6. The topic to which I'm referring to is uh, Christian contentment. Not merely contentment, but Christian contentment. It is possible for you to find some level of peace, inner peace, through something other than Christ, but it would be illegitimate, and it would be temporal. And that's kind of the point of this passage. It seems to me that from birth, every human knows intuitively that we were created for something more than what we have within ourselves when we are born. All of us kind of know this intuitively. So we are constantly on the hunt for that which ultimately satisfies. And yet, many never find it. We know from Scripture that God has offered himself as the satisfier of our souls. But possessing sinful hearts as we do, we continually look for contentment in every conceivable object and activity on earth. And even we as believers are tempted by this day after day, especially in our prosperous culture. There are so many things that require our attention, that, that insist that we give it attention. Uh, things that demand that we love them and serve them and sacrifice for them, who promise that they will satisfy us if only... And we listen to their siren songs to our own demise. Some people look for contentment in pleasing others. Some for, look for contentment in fame and pleasure or status or control. We, we understand that all these things can be bought if we have enough money. We can influence our way into the satisfaction that we desire. Money, therefore, becomes for many the great desire of our, of our souls because with it, it is believed, satisfaction and, con- and contentment can be purchased and owned. But that's the lie. That's the lie. And it's a lie that from time to time, every one of us believes. 
to our own detriment, to our own harm. And Paul doesn't want us to be harmed. Paul doesn't want us to be distracted from the river of life. And so he, he explains and he warns and he invites. This, by the way, this whole dynamic of seeking satisfaction in, in other things in this world other than Christ explains why our garages are so full and our attics are stuffed with all kinds of things that we'll never use. Again, at some point in the past, we no doubt thought that that thing or those many things would satisfy us. It might be that exercise bike that you thought would satisfy by magically making you thin. And you probably know, maybe you don't know where that thing is. You once thought the new car would make you happy and until you made your first payment or until you shelled out a couple hundred dollars for the first repair. Um, it may have been that house or that jewelry or that clothes, but alas, none of them, none of them has the capacity to bring the kind of satisfaction that God offers us in Christ. And this is Paul's concern in this passage before us. Paul wants us to learn to find true contentment in God. He wants us to remember, to be reminded of that contentment that we found the day we first believed. And he wants, he wants us to avoid the disappointment and, this, and the utter destruction that come from seeking it in what money can buy. As always, I want to begin this message by reading the text. And so would you stand with me in honor of God's word, and we will read 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 10. 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 10. Paul tells Timothy, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with, the, with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about which... Uh, they produce envy and dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Let him who has ears to hear, hear, what the Spirit says to his church. You can be seated. I see three major themes here in this passage. Number one, the, the greed of false godliness in verses 3 through 5, and then the contentment of true godliness in verses 6 through 8, and then the danger of discontent in verses 9 and 10. So that's kind of our structure for this morning. Let's think about the greed of false godliness in verses 3 through 5. We've already spent significant time talking about the false teachers. Paul has written much on it, even in this short letter, because it was such a dominant concern in his mind. 
And uh, it wasn't just in his mind, it was in the church like a cancer. And it was ravaging that church in Ephesus. But I don't want to belabor the subject of false teaching this morning. We have talked about that a lot already. Paul is using them here as a foil against which he can demonstrate the difference between false godliness and true godliness. The difference between false godliness and true godliness. But let's make a few observations about what he says here uh, regarding false teachers. First, Paul infers that these false teachers were teaching things that were contrary to what Jesus had taught and what the the, uh, apostles were repeating. The words... Um, words of Christ. When Paul says words of Christ, he means words that find their origin in Christ. We receive them from Christ. But these false teachers were denying them. Secondly, their teaching was also contrary to the gospel. And I, I, uh, I get that from the word godliness here, which is sometimes used by Paul as shorthand for gospel. For example, in chapter 3, just flip back a page or so, in uh, chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, let's look at this, uh, 3, verse 16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. And then he goes where you may not expect him to go. He says this, he, now he's speaking of Jesus, was manifest in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in the glory I mean, those are the essential truths of the gospel. And yet he calls it godliness. Likewise, back in chapter 1, we see Paul making a similar statement to the one he makes here in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 1. He says, uh, the sexually, let's see, that's, that's it. Uh, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality and enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So it's the same thing here. It's the doctrine and the gospel that he's concerned about. Whatever is contrary to sound doctrine according to the gospel. And these false teachers were teaching things that were contrary to sound doctrine, especially the gospel. Thirdly, these false teachers teach what is unhealthy for believers. In verse 4, he says they are proud, conceited, they don't understand what they're talking about, and they have an unhealthy, or the NAS says morbid, which means twisted or skewed, craving For controversy, literally, they have a sick interest, a sick interest in counseling. Now, for you young people, it's not sick as in the good thing. It's it's sick as in the bad thing. It's it's unhealthy. It's uh, it leads to controversy. It's it's unhealthy for the church, and we might say that sick preachers make sick churches. Sick doctrine makes. For sick churches, these men, um, in them there was there was something that was spiritually ill. There was something that was spiritually twisted in them. Even though they claimed to be followers of Christ, after all, they were in a a church that Paul himself had established, the Church of Ephesus. There was something spiritually ill about these these men. 
Their teaching didn't result in love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith that Paul talked about in chapter 1, verse 5, but rather in controversy, quarrels, envying, strife, slander, suspicion, and constant friction in the church. And then number four, in verse five, Paul gets to the heart of it when he says of these men that they've, they have depraved minds and are deprived of the truth. They are depraved and deprived. That stood out to me because of the comment that I made last week about what, how Paul refers to believing employers. Remember that? How he described them in chapter 6, verse 2. This is the same chapter, right? Verse 2, he calls them believers and beloved. These believing employers who are seeking to honor the Lord in the way they treat their employees or how, how, how masters treat their slaves. Of these false teachers, however, he calls them not believers and beloved, but depraved and deprived. And they were in the church. And the fruit of their spiritual depravity and deprivation is this, that they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. And I take that to mean godliness is a means of financial gain. In other words, these, his, these heretical teachers viewed religion as a means of making a quick dollar and making themselves rich, though they professed to be superior Christians, superior in godliness, they were greedy, they were materialistic, they exploited the church for their own profit without the slightest concern for the havoc that it would wreak in the body of Christ. And you only have to look today to the health-wealth movement and, um, and even to more conservative, theologically conservative preachers who are in it for the money. This is kind of who these guys were, except their doctrine was skewed as well. Oh, my friend... I'm, I'm not here to speak ill of anyone else's ministry, but rather simply to warn you about the greed of false godliness. Don't be enticed by men who put themselves forth as godly and they are making the test of godliness whether God has blessed you with riches. And this is unfortunately something, it's a doctrine that we have shipped overseas all around to the third world. In Uganda, right? Uh, in Uganda, it's all, it's all over Africa. It is, it is absolutely, it has gone from its inception in California to almost taking over the country of Africa. These charlatans have, have gone to the poor to make themselves rich. And it's amazing when you talk to these people who are tempted by it, as I have in Uganda. It's amazing the appeal that they have. If you just make a pledge, if you, if you just step out in faith and give us money, God will make you rich, and they never become rich. And yet it's hard to break out of that. It's so deceptive, so deceptive. And they have the authority of Scripture that they paste all over it, out of context, and in inappropriate ways, and they lead the sheep, God's sheep, astray. That's the greed of false godliness. Secondly, the contentment of true godliness. Verses 6 through 8. Look at, let's just look at verse 6, first of all. 
Verse 6, Paul says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. It's great gain. Notice the contrast. The false teachers operate on the premise that godliness, which in their mind is acting like a superior kind of Christian, is a means of gain, financial gain. But true godliness, Paul says, is in its essence great gain, great gain. In other words, the financial gain that they received is not to be compared with the great gain that true godliness brings. Why? Because true godliness, listen, you'll be tested on this later. True godliness, here's a definition. And it's not an exhaustive definition, but I think it fits the context here. True godliness is delighting in the deep, abiding satisfaction that only a vital relationship with God can bring. True godliness is delighting in in the deep, abiding satisfaction that only a vital relationship with God can bring. Godliness is a major theme in 1 Timothy. For example, in chapter 2, verse 2, Paul exhorts us to pray for kings and all who are in high position that we may live in a godly manner. Chapter 2, verse 10, he says that modesty is fitting for women who profess godliness. You profess to be one who delights in the Lord and finds satisfaction in him, then demonstrate that by your modesty. In chapter 5, verse 4, children and grandchildren of destitute widows should show their godliness by taking care of her. In chapter 6, verse 11, Paul tells Timothy to pursue godliness. So whatever this godliness is, it's something that you can grow in. You can become more godly. Or we might say, you can delight in the Lord. You can learn to delight in the Lord more than you do. As Jesus did, no one ever delighted in the Father more than the Son. But there's one statement in 1 Timothy that parallels most closely to this concept, the truth, and this this verse that is before us, and that is 1 Timothy 4.7, where Paul tells us to train ourselves for godliness, for While bodily training is of some value, listen to this, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It's good now, it'll be good later. Be good while you're alive, it'll be good after you die. You will be so thankful that you have this. And here's, a, and here's a little clue as to where Paul is going. It's the only thing that you can take with you. Amen. You can't take anything else when you die. So whatever true godliness is, it must be something that we will do forever in the presence of the Lord. Namely, we will love him with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind and all of our strength. There'll be nothing distracting. 
There'll be nothing that entices us to turn away from God's word, God's spirit. He will be for us the river of delight that he has promised to be and has always been, but we are so distracted from it and so satisfied by other things. But one day we will see him face to face, delighting in all that God is for us in Jesus. We will spend eternity doing that. That's what godliness will look like in heaven. And so the implicit message is, don't wait till heaven. Do that now. You can do that now. You can delight in the Lord now. And if you delight in the Lord, there is great gain. I always think of, uh, I think it's uh, Genesis 15, where uh, God is laying down his covenant with Abraham. And he says, uh, Abraham, I am the Lord your God. And I think most versions say, your reward shall be great. But... Another way to translate that Hebrew phrase is, uh, Abraham, I am the Lord your God. I am your great reward. Thomas Watson has a fantastic sermon on this from the 1600s called, How God is His People's Great Reward. I think that's what Paul's getting at here. Is the Lord your great reward? Or is it something you can purchase? Or something that you can earn? The word for contentment here in verse 6 in classical Greek meant self-sufficient. It was a striving for self-sufficiency. The Stoics were all into this. Not being dependent upon anything, but being sufficient in myself. Plato, for example, uh, refer to the, the state of one who supports himself without aid. That's contentment. In biblical usage, however, it means an inner sufficiency that keeps us at peace despite outward circumstances. Let me say that again. It is, this is contentment. Contentment is an inner peace, is it, I'm sorry, an inner sufficiency that keeps us at peace despite outward circumstances. And of course, we know it is an an inner sufficiency that is not our sufficiency. Because our sufficiency is in what? Christ. It's in Christ. Christ is our sufficiency. He is everything that we need and everything that we could desire. Do you see where Paul is leading us here? He's making a contrast between coveting and contentment. The contrast is between coveting and contentment. You might remember that the last of the Ten Commandments, we don't talk about the Ten Commandments much anymore, do we? The last of the Ten Commandments is, thou shalt not, what, class? Covet. Now, how many of you knew that before I said the word covet here and put it in your mind? Thou shalt not covet. In other words, a Christian... A Christian man should not look across the aisle in church and say, I sure would be happy if I had that guy's wife or that girl's husband. I'd finally be content if I had the car my neighbor just bought. 
or the house my friend just purchased, or the job, or the lawn, (laughs) or children, the ice cream cone, or the seat in the car. How many arguments have we had? (laughs) Never mind. It's coveting. The dictionary says to covet is to yearn to possess something one does not have. One axiom that points to this is that the grass is always what? Greener. It's always greener. Just think on the other side. If we can just get to the other side, if we just get what that cow has, then I will be fat and full and happy. And it, it never works out that way. The word covetousness is not in this passage, but I would submit to you that it's what this text is about. We might say that Paul's definition of covetousness is this, to desire something so much that you lose your your contentment in God. Covetousness here is to desire something so much that you lose your contentment in God. How is your contentment in God? I'm not saying, are you happy with your religion? I mean, in your relationship with Jesus Christ, your fellowship with him, how's that going? I think so many of us, if, if, if we were just to ask one another before we leave, every person asks someone, how is your contentment in, in God? I think we would, be, we would be shocked to hear how many people would say, oh, it's, it's kind of dry right now. It's not that great. Paul says, that's a problem. It's a problem. Covetousness is to desire something so much that you lose your contentment in God. The opposite of covetousness is contentment in God. Or you could say contentment in Christ, who is everything that God promised to be for us in Jesus. And when contentment in God decreases, covetousness for gain increases. When your contentment decreases, your covetousness increases because your heart is not passive, it is active. It is always looking for something to satisfy it. Always looking for something to satisfy it. And that means whether it's a good workout or a nap or success in business or whatever it is, getting that relationship, not losing that relationship, making the lawn grow, mowing it shorter. (laughs) That explains, by the way, why Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, covetousness is idolatry. By the way, do you remember what the first commandment is? You shall have no other gods before me. Isn't that interesting? The first commandment and the last commandment are kind of the same commandment. Don't have any other gods before me. Covetousness is idolatry. It is idolatry because contentment in something else other than in Christ, in that person, uh, it's, it's a contentment that a person should be getting from God, and he tries to get it from something else. And you'll remember from Jeremiah chapter 2 that this is something that God called the entire cosmos to come and see in Israel. Do we have a minute? Can we look at Jeremiah chapter 2? 
Jeremiah chapter 2. Verse 12, be appalled, O heavens. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. Isn't that amazing? He's, he's calling on the universe to be shaken by the revelation he's about to make about his people. The only place I know of in the Bible where God says something so, he uses the cosmos to bear witness against his people. And here's what he says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. And notice how he refers to himself. The fountain of living water. You hear satisfaction there? You hear quenching of spiritual thirst there? They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They cannot hold water. They leak. They are incapable of holding living water. This is, um, this is all over the Bible. It's described in different ways. James calls it spiritual idolatry, adultery, not idolatry. What is idolatry? Idolatry is when I take the worship and devotion that I owe to God and I give it to something else. What's spiritual adultery? It is taking the love that I owe to God and giving that love to someone else. Same in marriage, right? Spiritual, I mean, adultery in marriage. It's taking the love that I owe my wife and giving it to someone else. The scriptures use a variety of ways to describe this, but it's all the same. You've turned your back on God because you have found delight in something other than him. And that is not the path to contentment. It's the path to confusion and chaos and turmoil. No wonder Jesus says, you cannot serve God and money. And notice, uh, that's Matthew 6, 24. He doesn't say you should not, but you cannot. You cannot serve God in money. Why? Because covetousness is a heart divided between two gods. Covetousness is a heart divided between two gods. Think about this. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, this is John six thirty five. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. And he who believes in me shall not thirst. In other words, what it means to believe in Jesus is to experience him as the satisfaction of your heart's hunger and your soul's thirst. Faith in Jesus means being content in all that God is for you in him. And that's true of a brand new believer. It should be true of every believer for the rest of their life until they see him face to face. And that becomes the, just the permanent, the permanent experience between you and God. The difference between now and then is that we have so many pressures on us trying to draw us away. The world, the flesh, and the devil, right? And those are like three trees with multiple branches and all kinds of fruit. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And... They're all singing to us, offering to us 
It, it's, it's like in Proverbs, you have uh, the two women on the street, one on this corner and one on that. And they both are saying, come to me, come to me and find wisdom and delight and I will take you to God. And the one on the other side is said, come to me, come to me, find wisdom and delight and all the pleasures of the world. I promise it'll be better than what she's offering on the other side of the tree, street. Wisdom and folly, wisdom and folly. They both are making the same claim. Both of them have a sign in front of their house that says, this way to heaven. And praise God, in, in heaven, we won't, we won't have that struggle anymore. But in the meantime, beloved, you may be sitting here and, and thinking, I know where you're going, and, I, and I just, I'm just not that kind of person. Um, you mean Christian? Listen, I don't mean that to be insulting. What I mean is, this is something we all have to fight for. Every day of our lives, we have to fight for it. And when we're not fighting for it, there are plenty of other things that can come and fill our souls, fill our desires. We can find fulfillment in them instead of Christ. And then it doesn't take very long before you realize, Worth, I haven't read my Bible in a while. I haven't really prayed, really prayed in some time. I haven't really worshipped. I go to church every week, but I haven't re- when was the last time I really worshipped? I'm not saying you're not a child of God. If that happens, I'm saying you are imperceptibly being moved away by the little decisions you make every day, starting first thing in the morning. And witness, by the way, Paul's testimony in Philippians chapter 4. Can you turn there for a minute? Timothy, it's not too far behind Timothy. Turn to the left and... Philippians, right before Colossians, chapter 4. And you'll recall that Paul is writing this letter to thank the brothers at Philippi for their financial support of him. And he tells them, listen, you're, you're the only church that has faithfully supported me. And what's he mean? You're the only church that has sent me money. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Paul's thanking them for the money that he has sent to them. But he puts in this caveat. Look at verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be, what's the next word? Content. Same word, same author, different letter. But it's the same theme in in, in 1 Timothy, Paul is teaching it. In Philippians, he's living it. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and any, in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of, of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Here's, here's what he's saying. I know what it's like to be rich. I know what it's like to be poor, and I know how to be content when I'm rich, and I know how to be content when I'm destitute. I can, verse 13, please don't rip this out of context, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 
When our kids were little, there was uh, a Christian children's music guy named the Donut Man. You remember him? And he had a song about, I can do all things through, strength, uh, through him who strengthens me. And the kids ask, ride my skateboard? And he would say, all things. That's not what Paul's saying. And not thinking about you riding your skateboard or, uh, or making money or what's he talking about? When I am in need, I can be content. Whether I have abundance, even when I have an abundance, my, my contentment is not wrapped up in my abundance. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul? I mean, there were places, I mean, almost everywhere he went, he was despised, he was beaten, he was rejected, right? Like Jesus was. But there were times when he was with the brothers and there were wealthy people who would support him and when he was with them, he was comfortable, right? And Paul says, I can do that. I can be rich without without finding my contentment, my joy, my satisfaction and riches. And when I'm shipwrecked and when I'm snake bit, And when I'm being falsely accused and beaten with rods and rejected from false brothers and my own people, I can be content then. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Regardless of the circumstances, I I can be content. And all he's doing in 1 Timothy is he's saying, this is what I'm appealing to you for. You want true contentment? Learn to be content in Christ. All the time. All the time. Here's another way. Here's the Old Testament way to say this. Find your refuge in Him. How many times does Paul say that the Lord is His refuge? It's the place you run. It's the place you hide. It's the place where you find protection. It's the place where you find comfort and wisdom and help. And it's the same place. It is in Christ. You will run to something. Mark my words, you will run to something or someone. And Paul is appealing that we run to the only one who can truly satisfy and give us true wisdom and true comfort and true meaning and purpose in life. And so this is what he's getting at in Philippians 4, 11 through 13. It didn't matter whether he was hungry or whether he was full. He could do it all. He could do it all in a manner that was pleasing to the Lord. He knew that his refuge, his comfort, his satisfaction, his contentment was in all that God had promised to be for him in Jesus Christ. And so we've seen the greed of false godliness, the contentment of true godliness, and now the danger of discontent. Look at this, verses 9 and 10. Um, Paul's teaching us here that covetousness is the opposite of faith. Covetousness is the opposite of faith. But godliness with contentment in Christ is great gain. Therefore, don't be covetous or greedy for things in this life that can be bought and sold. Why? Because only Christ can satisfy. But then secondly, don't be greedy for what money can buy because you can't take it with you. 
If it brings any satisfaction at all, it will be temporary. Look at verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. You came into the world, how? Naked and empty-handed. And you will leave this world naked and empty-handed. There's never been a little girl born into the world clutching a Neiman Marcus (laughs) shopping bag. There has never been a boy born into the world clinging to keys to a Corvette. You brought nothing into the world, and when you die, you'll leave it all behind. This is a frequent refrain in Scripture, and I kind of laughed. I didn't realize it was in so many places. Job 1, 21. This is when Job is, is just hearing the news of the tragedies. Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. In Psalm 49, verse 17, the psalmist says, Don't be afraid of rich men, for when he, for, uh, of a rich man, for when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. Ecclesiastes 5.15, Solomon. This is interesting. Solomon, Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes in his latter years. He wrote his Proverbs, no doubt, in his early years when he was more optimistic. Solomon, after amassing all of the wealth, I read about this this week and I decided we didn't have time to dig into it, but there's a couple of passages that said he was so wealthy, he brought such wealth to Judah, to Israel, that silver was like pebbles on the ground. I mean, there was wealth everywhere. He had a, he had a thousand women in his life. Um, that sounds complicated, but... And it was, and it did exactly what God said it would do. It drew his heart away. And so Solomon says toward the end of his life, Ecclesiastes 5.15, As a man came from his mother's womb, so he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Nothing for his toil. Nothing for, I mean, some of us, we just work hard. Just working really, really hard for the wrong thing. And when you come to your deathbed and you pass through the door of death, everything's gone. Everything's gone. I know it's an overused axiom, but the principle here is that no one ever has seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You just can't take it with you. Whatever material possessions you accumulated in this life will be nothing one second after you die. But godliness with contentment holds promise for this life and the life to come. That's why Jesus says, don't store up treasures on earth where moth and dust corrupt and thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust cannot corrupt, and no thief can break in and steal. For where your treasure is, what? There your heart will be also. And so what do we learn from that statement of Jesus? We learn this. I want your heart in heaven. Put your heart in heaven 
where God is, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. May your heart be in heaven. And here's the test. Wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is. You want to know where your heart is? Ask yourself, what do I love most? What do I adore most? What do I sacrifice the most for? Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. May your heart be in heaven. Everything you put there is secure forever. Someone may ask, do you mean that we shouldn't desire anything in this life? No, I just mean, and I think Paul just means, we should be content in Jesus no matter what we have in this life. It's not... It's not money. Money is not the problem. It's the love of money instead of love of God. Are you sacrificing your time with God so that you can spend that time or sacrifice that time for money or possessions or other interests? And then we come to verse 8. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Paul's saying, we, we, he and whoever else is following in his steps. It's okay to have money and possessions. Just don't love them instead of Christ. Don't devote yourself to them more than Jesus. Don't find contentment in them instead of Jesus. And notice what happens to those who fail to heed this warning, verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. The word snare here points to a kind of net that the fowlers, you know what fowl are, right? Fowl are birds. What bird catchers, fowlers, what they, what they used to do is they would string these very thin, almost invisible nets between trees and of course, the birds would fly through the, between the trees and they'd get caught in the net. It's a snare. You get netted. You get captured. To be a money lover, lover or a possessions lover is to, be, is to put yourself in danger of being ensnared or trapped in that lifestyle that leads not to contentment and joy, but to destruction, no matter how comfortable the road to destruction may be. And the word plunge here, it's, um, it's a dark word. Think Titanic. It means to sink. It, like, a, like a wrecked ship sinks to the bottom of the sea, taking its crew and cargo with it. Crew and cargo. That's exactly what Paul is saying. Your crew and your cargo will go with you. You and all that you have amassed to yourself are to destruction. Last night I read an article in the New York Daily News entitled Curse of the Lottery. Tragic stories of big jackpot winners. The article contained tale after tale of people who won millions in the lottery who either lost it through extreme luxury spending or lost their families due to the strife and jealousy created by the sudden onslaught of riches. Where there is a will... There's a relative, I always say. 
The article reports that 44% of lottery winners lose all of their millions within the first five years. A number of them in this story, I thought about telling you names and, and actual events, but some of them were just so dark. The people who were murdered, I mean, like the week after they got the lottery, people had already conceived a plan to kill them to get their money. Think about covetousness. Time after time after time after time. Poisoning, oh, it, it's just awful. And the people who come and, and they want it and they're going to take it, relatives, family members, wives, husbands, girlfriends, boyfriends, children, the repre- repeated refrain of those who actually survived the ordeal of winning the lottery, repeatedly I read, we wish we had never won. We wish we had never bought that ticket because of the destruction and misery that that money brought into their lives. They thought it would make them happy. And for some of them, it literally, physically led to their death. And do you see why Jesus in the parable of the soil refers to it as the deceitfulness of riches? One of the things that keep people out of heaven, you know the four soils, right? One of them was a metaphor for the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of the world. Snatches the seed of the gospel away. In Proverbs 15, 16, Proverbs is a book of warnings. And some of these written by Solomon himself. But here, Proverbs 16, or 15, 16, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great tre- uh, treasure and trouble with it. There's a man who knew of what he spoke. In Hebrews 13, 5, these are just samples, by the way. It's found all over over the text of Scripture. Hebrews 13, 5, keep your life free from, notice he doesn't say free from money. Keep your life free from the love of money. Why? Because you owe all of your love to Jesus. And you will be happy if all of your love goes to Jesus. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. You see that? You see what he's saying? The reason you can be content without all of that and even with a lot of that is this. I'm here. I'm here. I haven't moved. While you're running into here and there and are, are tormented by the dissatisfaction that comes from seeking things God hasn't given or things that cannot satisfy that you actually achieve, the Lord is saying, I'm here. I'm totally accessible. When you wake up in the morning, I'm here. In your lunch break, I'm here. At night, in the watches of the night, I'm here. You can be satisfied in me. I'm not a leaky cistern. I am the fountain of living water. Come to me and be satisfied. I'm here. I'm everywhere I'm here. The real danger, however, is not temporal. It is eternal. It's an eternal danger. Look at verse 10. For the love of money, notice again, It's not just money, it's love of money. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. 
And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Love of money is like a tree that has many branches and bears many different kinds of sinful fruit. It can lead you into drugs. It can lead you into immorality, theft, murder, cheating on your taxes, falling into irresistible debt, followed by divorce, followed by the destruction, utter destruction of your family. But more than that, it leads many into eternity without God. I think one of the one of the quickest avenues geographically, one of the closest um, and shortest ways to hell is through America. And the reason I say that, not that I don't love this country, I love this country. Every time I come home from the third world and I, and I am greeted by a customs agent at DFW and they say, welcome home, I'm so grateful to live here. But because of our wealth and because of the pleasure and the riches, because of the constant drawl on our souls, I would dare say it is easier to get to hell here from here than almost anywhere. It leads to eternal eternity without God. For the love of money, some... Some will give it all away. They'll give their faith away. They will become like Judas. And you've got to wonder if he was thinking of Judas here. Judas, who, by the way, was, um, was probably the most respectable among them. Perhaps. Judas comes from Judah, which was certainly the most respected city in what was greater Israel. Um, Matthew, Matthew knew money, probably the most unrespected amongst the 12. Why didn't they give him the money? And they gave it to Judas. They trusted Judas. They trusted him. He was a respectable man. He was concerned about managing that money. I mean, good night. Why are you breaking that vial of perfume and dumping it all out? We could have used that money for the poor. And we know his heart wasn't where his mouth was. But they had respect for Judas. And when it came time to, for Jesus to say, one of you will betray me, they didn't look to him. They looked to each other. Is it me? Is it me, Lord? Is it me? And yet Judas who pretended to love Christ. In reality, in reality, he loved that little bag that was hanging from his belt more than he loved Christ. And that's why he was able to betray him. He loved gold more than God. He loved gold more than God. Isn't that what Paul is talking about here? The lie of money is that it can buy you the thing that will bring you lasting joy and contentment, but it never does. 
On the other hand, the wonderful promise of God is that he always is with you to be your refuge, your provider, your comfort, your delight, your eternal satisfier of your soul. Witness Psalm 84, 11, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Or Psalm 100, verse five, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to generations upon generations. Or Psalm 1611, where the psalmist said, Lord, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Or Psalm 36, 7 through 9, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. These are contented souls. These are men who found their delight in God. When I looked down at, at, at Jen and Damon a few minutes ago, I thought of Shannon Hurley, and I apologize for that. But um, he has this fantastic sermon called uh, One Thing Necessary. And it's, it's all about um, Martha and Mary and the things that Jesus said about Mary sitting at his feet. And he said, Martha, you're so concerned about so many other things. Mary has chosen the best thing, and it will not be taken from her. I will not tell her to leave my feet so she can work in the kitchen. There's a time and a place to work in the kitchen. It's time to listen to me. It's time to delight in your maker. There is one thing necessary, and it will not be taken from her. How can I battle the temptation to worship money and possessions? Uh, this could be a whole other sermon, and I'm out of time, but here's two things. Devote yourself to true fellowship with Jesus every day. Fight for it. Don't just read your Bible. Do anything and everything possible to eat it and drink it and delight in it so that you can find Jesus to be all that God promised to be for you in him. Does that take work? Yes. Does that take self-denial? Yes. But it will be a self-denial that feeds you. It is a self-denial that will pay off dividends far beyond anything that you can get from the stuff of the world. You want to do battle against the temptation to worship money? Devote yourself to true fellowship with Jesus every day. That's one discipline. Here's another discipline. Remind yourself that, God, that gold is not your God by giving it away. Giving your money is an act of worship. When we take the offering here in church, we don't call it the collection plate. This is not the collection plate. It's an opportunity for us to worship, all of us, to worship you say, what, how does giving money in the church, how, how, how does that translate to worship? Like this, God. And, and whether you're here dropping it in the plate or whether you're at home pushing the button, clicking the mouse, whatever, 
Either way, if your heart is saying in that activity, Lord, I give this to you to remind myself that you are my God and not gold. I trust in you and not gold. And that regardless, and some of you aren't members of this church, you come from other churches. This, this goes for your church as well. Regardless of the direction your, your church is going, regardless of whether you like the leadership or you don't like the leadership, look, that, that doesn't have anything to do with your giving to the Lord. Because when you give, if you give rightly with your heart in heaven, then you are saying, God, I'm giving this. Part of the reason I'm giving this to you is to lay up treasures in heaven, yes. But it's the same thing. It's worship. I'm reminding my soul right now that my trust is the Lord my God. And if I have no money at the end of this week, if it all gets taken away, have you? And I believe that's all I need. My God is not gold. Oh, my dear friend, aren't you tired of searching for contentment in the things that never satisfy? I suspect you've already concluded that you can never be satisfied by those things. But where can you turn? And I would tell you that the Apostle Paul and Jesus himself would say, turn to Christ, turn to Jesus. C.S. Lewis says, if you come to the conclusion that there's nothing on earth that satisfies, then you should conclude you were created for something else, something beyond earth. Turn to Christ. He is God. He's your only hope of salvation. He is your only hope of eternal joy. And won't you trust him to remove all of your guilt and shame, all of your sin, and not only remove all of your sin, but to be for you forever, everything that God promised to be for you, to make you his child, to bring you into his household, to adopt you, to make you an heir to all that he has given to Christ, and to do that with a heart that has been purified by the blood and righteousness of Jesus. Won't you give yourself to him completely? He'll forgive all your sin. He'll give you a vital relationship with God that will always, always satisfy. And if you're a Christian, can I ask you a question? How's your relationship with the living Christ? Are you delighting in the Lord? Are you finding the satisfaction your soul desires in him? I told one of the guys in the office this week, I said, you know, this, this text and this message is doing something to my heart that I didn't expect it to do because I didn't know that it would take us here. How is your delight in the Lord? Not how is the success of my ministry. How is my delight in the Lord? Are you finding the satisfaction of your soul in him? And perhaps it's time to admit that you've been at least temporarily believing the lie that money can buy you contentment. It can't. Isn't it time to revive your love for Christ and your personal communion with him? And listen to the apostle who says, godliness with contentment is great gain. 
and listen with a heart that is in heaven, remembering that where my treasure is, there my heart will be also. Where's your heart today? Where's your heart? Let's pray. Father, I confess I needed this message this week. And I ask, oh Father, that you will send your spirit to so move in our midst that we will collectively admit we need to be reminded of this again and again and again. And I pray for anyone in this room this morning who has not put their complete hope and trust in Jesus. And they have not been born again, as your word calls it. They haven't, they haven't come to faith in Jesus. Lord, would you send your spirit to do that in them? Give them a desire to know you in the capacity to resist the temptation to turn from you, to fly to Christ, bringing all their sin with them, and to find you removing it from them and laying it on Christ instead. Father, would you rescue them and save them for eternity so that they can know Jesus as we know Jesus. Lord, we love you and we praise you for your word, praise you for your church, praise you for opportunity to come and hear your word week after week. We pray that it would have the desired effect, your desired effect on our hearts today, we pray in Jesus' name.